Welcome to your province, your premier. Heard on QR Calgary and in Edmonton on 630 Ched. I'm Wayne Nelson, your host and moderator. If you have a question, a concern, something on your mind for the premier, you can phone or text. But a big reminder, please keep those questions or texts as short as possible. All right, Premier Smith is ready and waiting to hear from you today. Those numbers, just in case you forgot, 403-974-8255 in Calgary, 780 in Edmonton. Premier Smith, welcome back to the studio. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Wayne. It's been such a long time. So many issues have happened in the last two weeks. we got a lot to talk about. We sure do. Now, before we get to those phone and text lines, I have a few questions, as usual. But before that, I think it's important to acknowledge National Day for Truth and Reconciliation today. What does it mean to you, to the government of Alberta, and especially to Albertans, including, of course, our Indigenous peoples? Well, we were so pleased to be able to open up Reconciliation Garden at the grounds of the legislature yesterday. And in my <clears throat> in my remarks, I, I uh, commented that of all of the residential schools in Canada, Alberta had the most of them. If you can, if you can believe it, and I, I, one of the young women who was there, she uh, sort of, a, I think she's even a few years younger than me. Even she had gone to a residential school. By then, it had moved to a day program. There's actually a, a, a success story of Blue Quill, which is an indigenous university that has been taken over from the former site of a residential school. And so, these are the kind of stories that you hear of people just being able to, to share their own experience and have a, a place where they can go. They can, um, they can give an offering. We had music, we had performers, we had members from not only First Nations, but also from Métis communities. And so it was a, it was a really good day. You know, people feeling very somber, but I think also very hopeful that we're going to have true reconciliation. And in our province, we, we underscore that with economic reconciliation as well. I'm just so pleased that our business community has been stepping up to partner with First Nations on a whole range of projects. I think we're really going to be able to advance a lot of issues in, in, in very short order and make some amends for the past all right, some big news from this past week. Your Sovereignty Act update. The new application for coal mining near Pincher Creek, that seems at odds with a pause on renewable energy projects. There's the Alberta Pension Plan proposal and an update on the E. coli investigation. So let's start with the uh, Sovereignty Act. Just before you announced that you're preparing a Sovereignty Act motion, uh, in the event the federal government insists on moving forward with its net zero emissions plan by 2035, uh, ASO, the Alberta Electric System Operator, announced that it too has concerns about the 2035 goal. Yet there are still those who say, hey, 2035 is doable. Now, my understanding is the issue is what's doable and what's feasible. Is that right? It's a couple of things. And uh, it's also, uh, do we have a reliable grid? That's the number one thing that I'm very concerned about, because we've had seven uh, level three alerts in the last year, which means that the power grid is close to failing. And when it gets that to that point, some people have, have uh, get their, their lights turned off to be able to maintain the integrity of the grid. In normal years, it's zero or one. So to have seven in a year shows that we have major instability. And part of that is that we don't have enough base load that is in the system. We've got in the next year, we've got three major projects, gas plants coming on that will help solve that reliability problem. But we've got virtually nothing else in the queue. And part of that is because of the federal government creating so much uncertainty around what, what is going to be possible. They they are trying to make the, the public believe that they are being um, that they are being measured and reasonable. Anything but. They are expecting any new plant to come on to be 95% abated by uh, of, of carbon dioxide by 2035. And if they're not, 
the executives responsible for that company will go to jail for three years. That's what they're telling the public. So you can imagine that any business executive I'm talking to who's in the business of power plants, they're saying, my board of directors isn't going to allow me to build a power plant today on the basis that I might go to jail 12 years from now or somebody's going to go to jail. And so as a result, all we have in the queue is intermittent power. We had 20... Now, ASOS... uh, ASOS, uh, News conference. This, like, this yeah. was a first for them. They, they never do that. That's right. Um, That's how serious they, it is. It, it is, but are they speaking f- from a, an overly uh, sense of caution or, as some people say, that ASO has kind of missed its targets in the past, that they've shot for, they say something is not going to happen for 20 years and it happens in five. So are they, are they speaking from that perspective or are they fear-mongering? They're telling us in public what they've been telling me in private for a year and what they've been telling my ministers in private for a year. And so this is the reason why we had to act on the pause. So look where we're at right now. We have 23,000 megawatts of wind and solar in the queue, virtually no natural gas. And when we announced the pause, in fact, it increased the number of people who want to do work here. So now we have 41,000 megawatts of wind and solar in the queue and no Uh, natural gas to back it up. You have to remember that when the wind doesn't blow, it doesn't blow and you get no power. When the sun doesn't shine, it doesn't shine and you get no power. We cannot run a power grid in Alberta with plus 30 and minus 30 weather with the variations of temperature, variation of sunlight, variation of wind and snow uh, and and, and solar and be able to run it off wind and solar. It's not possible. And I, I don't want anyone to believe it is possible. People say, oh, well, what about battery backup? Let me tell you how much batteries cost because I found out yesterday from a company contemplating it and saying it's too expensive. For every megawatt you want to back up, you have to pay a million dollars for storage. You have a 200 megawatt plant, you have to spend $200 million for storage and you get one hour of storage. So so factor that out. If we need 12,000 megawatts of power, and we need to be able to have storage because we're moving to 100% to solar and wind. We were talking billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars to make that happen. It is not practical. This is why we are trying to have a mature adult discussion with the federal government. Unfortunately, Stephen Guibault keeps being unreasonable. And as long as he's unreasonable, we, we have to continue with our campaign to educate the rest of the country about what this means, not only for us, but for Saskatchewan, for Nova Scotia, for New Brunswick, and for any other province that is contemplating having to bring on new power for growth. The uh, the targets they've set out there, the provisions they have, they're not going to be achievable. So your Sovereignty Act motion is... It's the ace in the hole, the last card. You're not going to play it unless you absolutely have to. Yep, and I hope I don't have to, but we are preparing it. And I must tell you, Wayne, people shouldn't be surprised by that. I I campaigned on it during my leadership. I said that the conditions that I would use it for is if the federal government came through with an unrealistic emissions cap on oil and gas, on fertilizer for our food producers, on electricity, as well as on methane. And it looks to me like we've at least won on fertilizer. They don't seem prepared to to, uh, bring through a cap on that. But they're talking about caps on all of those other three then we're just going to have to make sure that we're defending consumers here and defending albertans and that's what we'll do all right let's go right to the phones uh, one of my other topics that i wanted to discuss uh daryl out in diamond valley is going to uh, talk to you about that today and that is the issue of the alberta pension plan go ahead daryl you're on with premier smith good morning premier smith my concern is this i want to have the pension and every month uh i rely on the pension to be there and it's there all the time it's it's you know now i'm concerned that an alberta pension will be administered by employees of the alberta government now the alberta government employees like to go on strike now and then 
will that affect whether I get my pension or not? Uh, Daryl, first of all, I'd say that, you know, CPP um, or the uh, the Canada Revenue said. Agency uh, employees just went on strike as well and everybody managed to get their, their payments. And so there, there are automated systems in place that allow for a seamless um, a way of making sure people get the money that they need. We've already demonstrated we can do this with our affordability payments that we did from January through to June. And we uh, also know that it's um, the law says that the only way you can set up an additional pension plan is that if you offer the exact same or better benefits than what happens uh, in the CPP. So there's uh, there's there's no way that to, to implement it uh, without having those those guarantees. And it's up to Albertans to decide. I mean, we wanted to let them know the report. We wanted to let the country know just how much Alberta is carrying the freight on not just this program, but virtually every program. And we want to put it to the people to decide, do they want lower premiums? Do they want higher benefits? And do they want to create an ecosystem of uh, greater investment in this province? Those are the, the, th- the three factors that Jim Dinning is going to be doing his consultation on. And I'm looking forward to seeing what his recommendations are. If people want to go to a referendum, we will. When it comes to the proposal for the Alberta Pension Plan, there's a lot of controversy over the numbers that are being bandied about right now. Uh, 52 or 53 uh, percent that we should be getting back from CPP. Uh, you know, Mark Twain uh, had a saying, uh, lies, lies, and statistics. Uh, basically, you can make the numbers uh, say whatever you want. So this is where people are going to have to get, what's the truth here? Well, the formula is in statute. It's legislated. And we've got a company which was formerly Morneau-Chapelle. Yeah, that Morneau, Bill Morneau, the Liberal Finance Minister, it's his company. So it's not like we used somebody who would be aligned with us politically. We wanted to use the best company, the company that knows how to interpret the law and can do the actuarial analysis. And that's what they came up with if, uh, if based on the formula that they, that they have. So I think it does. it is a measure of how much we over-contribute. And we over contribute because we have a younger population, we've got a higher workforce participation, we've got those workers paying more in and employers paying more in on their behalf. And that's the reason why we consistently over-contribute. I guess my question is, if we don't uh, do something about this now, what's it going to be in 2050? Like, h- How much over-contribution is, ca- is Alberta going to continue to have? When does this get fixed so that we actually have a, a reasonable contribution rate and that our seniors are getting supported? So that's part of the question people have to ask them. And it may well be that Albertans are happy with with, uh, with this scenario where we constantly pay, overpay um, to every but program that's ma- administered by the feds. Exactly. Okay. They have the ultimate choice. I think people know that I'm I'm persuaded by the numbers, but it's not up to me. It's going to be up to Albertans. All right. We're going to pause for a break. I'm Wayne Nelson. I'll be back with Premier Danielle Smith. More of your calls and texts when we return on Your Province, Your Premier. If you're just joining us today, you are indeed listening to Your Province, Your Premier, heard Saturday mornings for listeners throughout Alberta, in Edmonton on 630 Chad, and here in Calgary on QR Calgary. Okay, back to the phones. Uh, Lon is calling in from Claire's home on solar farm infrastructure. Go ahead, Lon. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Premier Smith, thank you for your protection of Alberta. I'm calling in regards to the solar farms. Yeah. My wife is Japanese, my children are Japanese, and they were all born in Japan. They worry about what is going on in Asia and China constantly threatening to invade Taiwan and Japan. Now, 98% of the infrastructure for solar farms comes from Chinese manufacturing. 
couldn't we just propose that at least 50% of the manufacturing come from our local welding shops and stuff like that instead of continuously financing a country that could invade another country I love and, and leave jobs and money in Canada instead of outsourcing it everywhere. Lon, I, I love what you're saying. And yes, I mean, I would love to see uh, some more of that of that manufacturing brought into Alberta. We have to we have to make sure that we're doing our part to create a business environment that makes us competitive. But I, I think you're right. There's going to be a lot of solar development. I, I've said that what I, what I would like to see is why isn't there more proposals for rooftop solar and on the top of businesses? I know that uh, West Edmonton Mall is in the middle of doing... Um, a major installation. And so uh, we're going to continue to have solar investment in this province for a long time to come. And I agree with you. It'd be nice to see a, a large portion of that created close to home. All right. Uh, text message. Uh, Jerry is texting in on the 630 Chad line. He says, can you please change the H income support dates to match the federal ones? They're at least doing something right three business days prior to to the first of the month. Well, that's a smart idea. I'll uh, raise that with Jason Nixon because I, I know that the issue is that you need the money in the account because then rent comes out. There's a lot of payments that come out on the first of the month. So having the money there makes a, a lot of sense. Let me see what we can do on that. Okay, William uh, from Sanguto. Oh, before we go to William on Sanguto, uh, Ruth's been hanging on for, for a while here uh, and his cost of the Alberta Pension Plan study. Go ahead, Ruth. You're on with Premier Smith. Yes, good morning. How much is it costing Alberta taxpayers for your ridiculous study on APP? What budget line is it coming from? Well, the government does studies all the time. Government does advertising campaigns all the time. This would be coming out of the Department of, uh, of Finance. And we think it's important for people to be able to go and go to the source, get the information, because we, we can't rely on social media to be able to get the facts out to people. So uh, feel free to go online, albertapensionplan.ca, and you can, uh, you can see all the information, and then we'll get feedback. You have an opportunity to give us feedback there. It's, it's what government does. When government has policies, they have to advertise it, and they have to let people know they have to have consultation. Speaking of advertising, the Sovereignty Act motion, which has to do with the net zero emissions plan, $8 million uh, advertising campaign. Is that justified? Well, I can tell you um, the NDP thought it was justified when they brought through a punitive carbon tax to spend $9.5 million advertising it. As I said, governments have to um, have to fund the initiatives and they have to let people know about them so that they're not surprised by them. This is vitally important to Alberta's interests. It's vitally important to the Canadian interests. We are astonished that in New Brunswick, as a for instance, only 10% of the population even know what the clean electricity ra uh, regulations are. And yet they are going to be one of the most impacted provinces. I think what happens is that uh, the oftentimes governments expect that it's going to be up to business to do this kind of advertising. But you know what business does? Business just quietly keeps their heads down and then they look for other places to invest their money. It's up to us as government to tell people the risk that they're going to have if we don't have reliable, affordable electricity. We are not the only ones at risk. Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick are as well. And we need to make sure everybody understands that this is not just one of those, oh, why don't we put the regulation out there and see what happens? I'll tell you immediately what happens because we're already seeing it. People are not investing today. And it takes up to seven years to get these plants built. So if we do not have investment today, we, we and we're already beginning to get stress on our power grid, we have to fix it now. 
Uh, I can't wait until we have the catastrophe that we've seen in Texas. I can't wait until we have the catastrophe catastrophe that we've seen in Europe. In Europe, we can't wait for the grid to fail as an education tool so that people understand how important this is. This is the time to educate people before it happens, so it doesn't happen. Okay. On that topic, uh, we now go to William in Sanguda. Go ahead, William. You're on with Premier Smith. Yes, Premier Smith. You say you haven't got reliable backup. I mean, I haven't heard you mention geothermal or those small nuclear reactors. You add those to the wind and solar, and we'd have all kinds of electricity. I mean, you got to stop pausing and go forward. We, the, the scientists have been telling us for decades what we're doing. If you've never listened to David Suzuki's survival guide, I suggest you make it a priority for your government. Well, he's in, he's incorrect because I have mentioned small modular nuclear and I have yeah, mentioned we, we geothermal. Yeah, we've talked about it on this show before, in yes. Fact, in fact, Rebecca Schultz just went to Germany for one of our companies here pioneering in geothermal. They got a major award. And so, yeah, we're going to continue supporting geothermal. We're also supporting small modular nuclear. My energy ministers are in the process right now of talking to Ontario, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, so that we can figure out how to roll these out when they're available. This is just it. The technology hasn't been rolled out yet in Canada. The first modular nuclear is set to go up in 2028. And that's why setting an aggressive target of having our entire power grid on geothermal and, so, and, uh, and small modular nuclear, even if we were to do that, simply not possible to do by 2035. I've said 2050, and there's a reason for that, because as your last caller said, he's, he's absolutely right. Eventually, this technology will be available. It'll be proven. We'll have the time to do the consultation and the construction and the build-out. And we'll be able to get there by 2050, but we can't do that in 12 short years. Part of the problem, as we've discussed on the show before, Premier Smith, is that Alberta does not have the, as Ontario does, or Quebec has, the nuclear reactors in place. We do not have the, the hydro uh, generation that those provinces have. That's exactly right. I mean, the, every province has different geography, and that's the reason why electricity under our constitution is exclusive jurisdiction of the provinces. Because Stephen Guibault, it's very clear to me that he and his department and all of the bureaucrats at the federal level have no idea how our power grid operates. They've come up with an arbitrary deadline, and as we're educating them, it's like deer in headlights. They have no idea what they've done or what they're proposing to do. And it's up to us as a government to tell them that they're wrong, tell them how we can get to 2050 with an, an emissions reduction target, and that, that we keep reliability and affordability front of center. That's what really matters. When the when you flick the switch, the lights have got to come on when it's plus 30 and when it's minus 30. An Australian company has resubmitted its plan for coal mining in the Crow's Nest Pass. Now, it looks like the application has been accepted. Why did that happen? Didn't a commission recommend a moratorium on development? And, and if so, so why is there no pause on coal development, but there is one on renewable resource projects. Alberta's government, we're keeping strong restrictions in place on coal, and the application for these exploration drilling activities is being reviewed by the Alberta Energy Regulator, which is the proper authority for, to review them. An application doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be approved, but the ministerial order restricts coal 
projects, but does allow for exceptions. And that's always been the case, including active coal mines or advanced projects. And I believe there's three of them that um, were identified as being active and advanced. Uh, two in the Crosnes Pass area on Category 4 land. So they've already been developed in the past, and it's a matter of whether or not the development will continue. And then there's also another one, I believe, in, in uh, Grand Cache or in the Hinton area. So very small number of exceptions, and we have to let the process play out with the Alberta Energy Regulator. All right. Justin is calling in from Edmonton. Go ahead, Justin. Uh, pronoun student. Hi, good morning, Premier Smith. Hi, Justin. I noticed that uh, I, I noticed that the the UCP was also had one of the proposals in the ideas law process leading up to the AGM to copy New Brunswick and Saskatchewan requiring parental consent for name and pronoun changes. Do you support the Do you support that resolution that's being put to the floor at the AGM? Well, you know, I'll let the AGM process play out and see what our members have to say. We're having discussions in caucus as well, and we're watching what's happening in the rest of the country, watching the legal challenges that are taking place, and we want to make sure that we we have a policy that puts kids first, uh, respects parental rights, and tries to depoliticize this and bring the temperature down. I just I just don't think that having this kind of of social clash is is very helpful to the kids who are who are going through and struggling with gender identity. So we're trying to to make sure that we're making the right choice to protect everybody's interests, and we'll we'll see what what emerges from those policy discussions. Jeremy is texting in from Spruce Grove. He says, "I would like to ask the premier if there is any plan on giving the Alberta sheriffs a raise, seeing how the roles have been expanded and the province is planning to continue expanding the roles of the sheriffs." <laughs> well, I don't want to bargain here on the air, but I can tell you that we're uh, we have to get into collective bargaining in the new year. And we, we absolutely have to look at whether the, the jobs uh, that we're offering and the pay that we're offering is consistent with what we see in other large provinces for similar types of, of uh, occupations. So that's the, the, the hard work that our, our bargaining team is going through right now. And you, you guys know I love our sheriffs. I think that um, the f- amount of investment we've put in them demonstrates that my confidence that, uh, that, that they're going to just continue to do more and more work on behalf of, uh, of Albertans. So we're, we're quite happy to continue providing those opportunities. But the uh, the the negotiations begin in earnest next year. Neil has a question from Edmonton. Uh, healthcare wait list. Go ahead, Neil. Hello, uh, Premier. I, I've been in I've been in Alberta all my life. I've worked in Alberta all my life. I've never been a burden on the healthcare system all the time. And now uh, my knee is gone, my right knee, and I can't do the things that keep me healthy. And now I, I have to get a new knee replacement, and uh, now I'm told that I have to wait 28 months to get a knee replacement. Now that's 28 months, that's over two years. And I just think that, uh, I mean, there's something wrong here that, that uh, we have to wait so long for these kinds of things, and yet we have to trust you to look after a pension, but we can't trust you to look after our health care. I mean, surely there, there's... Our health care for the seniors is more important than what's being, what, I, what I've been seeing from the government. Can you help me out on that? Yeah, I no, look, I agree with you. Hey, look, I, I didn't create the problems. I'm just trying to solve them. I've been in the position now for, if you can believe it, Wayne, I guess uh, my one-year anniversary will be October the 11th, if you can imagine. So I haven't even been in the job for a year. But the reason why I've already made the decisions that I did on health care is I'm, I equally agree it's unacceptable to wait 28 months for 
for a knee replacement or a hip replacement is why we, we took a hands-on approach with helping to uh, to put an official administrator in place to improve on a whole range of fronts including reducing surgical wait times getting some calm in our emergency room so that we had capacity and addressing the issue of ambulance response times but the fourth part of that was decentralization of decision making so we've started that process i've got a new uh, health minister in place who is uh, is working on a, a plan for how we're going to make sure that we have more chartered surgical centers so that we can do more of those types of surgeries and we'll have more to say on that before the end of the year um, the new health minister came in took a look at the lay of the land she's prepared to start making some movements very quickly here and so we're just going through the process through, through our caucus and cabinet of getting that in place but we share the same goal no one should wait longer than medically recommended for any uh, critical health care need. And that's that's what our target is. Where are we on those measurable goals? Is there some new data to support that <laughs> improvements have been made in terms of wait lists for this, uh, wh whatever the health uh, issue of the day is? Well, we do have some, you know, I'll see if I can get my, my staff is listening. I'll see if I can get them to send me the, the updated numbers because the, the ones that, that we had just prior to going into the election, we'd already seen a 17% decrease in the wait times in emergency rooms. We had already seen a reduction. We were reducing the amount of uh, surgeries, surgeries on the surgical backlog by about 3,000 per month. Again, that was just prior to the election. We'd gotten down to about uh, 30,000 who, who were waiting longer than medically recommended. And we'd also essentially eliminated red alerts uh, so that we always had ambulances available. Now, I, I know that that has, um, we've, we've had more pressure, especially in Calgary and Edmonton, as we've had more overdoses and more calls on our, our EMS. So I think that there have been some delays, but uh, we, we that is our objective is to make sure that those three measures we want to get to, nobody waiting longer than medically recommended for um, a surgical need. We want to make sure we always have ambulances available so there are no red alerts where ambulances are not available. And uh, we, we also have to, to, to make sure that uh, people have an efficient way of getting in and through an emergency room. And there's been some successes. I mean, when you look at what happened with um, this E. coli outbreak, the fact that the Children's Hospital was able to manage a load of 357 kids being identified as having E. coli, many of them needing to be hospitalized, many needing to be on a dialysis, the fact that they were able to handle that surge is a demonstration to me that at the front line, they're thinking through innovations for how they can de develop uh, that capacity. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of positive signs. Not enough yet, but we're going to do more. On the topic of the E. coli outbreak, uh, where does that stand right now? I know you've uh, uh, put uh, former police chief Rick Hansen in charge of the investigation uh, into that, providing some recommendations, finding out what's going to be happening. Uh, are you waiting until that report comes in? Uh, what's the status? The we are we have plateaued on the number of cases and secondary infections, which is such a relief to everybody because secondary infections can be every bit as dangerous as primary infections as well. And so that and we still have a few kids in. A hospital. I can't tell you the precise number because of privacy reasons, but it's so low that I can say that there are a few kids, and that is also a great relief to all of us that uh, the number of kids who are in that really critical acute need is uh, is trending absolutely in the right direction. A lot of those kids are still going to need to go back for regular testing to make sure there isn't any long-term damage, but they did an amazing job at the front line making sure they got the care, they put them on dialysis, and that they... Um, 
we're providing a, a comfortable environment for the families. The the reason we have Rick Hansen in is, you know, he's uh, he's a trained investigator. He's got a lot of credibility from the work that he did as chief. He's dedicated his time in retirement to charities and causes that support kids. He's been following this very closely. And I think people wanted some confidence that no stone would be left unturned in figuring out what went wrong along this chain. We, you, we announced earlier this week that all roads point to a particular meal served on August the 29th. It was the meatloaf as well as a vegan loaf. So there's a number of things we have to look at. We have to look at... Um, safe uh, cooking temperatures were they um, do we need to do have more policy around that safe holding temperatures do we need to have uh, more policy around that safe food handling practices to make sure there isn't cross contamination do we have to do more around that once food is packaged up is it being transported at the right temperature whether it's cold or whether it's hot how do we stack up against other provinces you know it's tough to, to really be able to compare province to province I don't think that any other province has ever seen a an outbreak like this this is one of the worst outbreaks that we've ever seen in the in the country and so that's why we have to do our due diligence here and one of the things that uh, that uh, Rick will be looking at is whether there are practices in other provinces that we should adopt here. There's a few that I've already asked him to look at. The, for instance, a posting the most recent kitchen inspection report on site at every daycare so that families can have a look at it themselves and make a, an assessment of whether or not that's high enough. And you know what happens when you post, shines the light on things and it has a way of ev- making everybody that much more diligent. So they do that in other jurisdictions. I'm open-minded. I think that's a pretty good idea. In other jurisdictions as well, Every person who handles food in a kitchen has to be trained on the food safe program so that they know safe storage, safe handling practices, and making sure that they don't have cross-contamination. That seems like a, a pretty good idea here, too. So I want him to look at that as well. There's a, a number of different programs that are offering it at a number of different price points. So we have to make sure that we understand the implications if we make it mandatory for all kitchen staff. And they'll also be... I think what also has come through is that when we do inspections, if there is uh, food being transported off-site, we have to make sure that we're looking at the vans and ensuring that they've got proper refrigeration and uh, proper um, equipment to keep it at either the cold temperature or the warm temperature. So those those are a few of the things that I, we've already identified that I want some answers on. And we're not going to wait until the final report comes out. If, if, he, if, the, if the committee knows that things need to be changed immediately, then we'll change them. Uh, but, uh, but I think people want to get to the bottom of what actually happened here and make sure it doesn't happen again. All right. Some further health questions. Uh, one on the phone line, uh, one on the text. We'll go to the text line first. This one from Graham. Premier, when is the insulin pump program going to include CGM, constant glucose monitoring? The insulin pump isn't much good without the engine, which is the CGM. Hmm. Okay. Duly noted. Um, I'll leave that to my my health minister to identify uh, how we how we might be able to do that. Seems like a good idea. I know that there's been a, a lot of change in the in the health ministry over the last year, but I think that with some of the changes that um, Minister Lagrange is making, it's going to be a, a little easier to know what is the point of access to put a good idea forward and actually get it acted on. So I'll make a note. I don't know that we have an answer on this one yet, but um, but it, it'll be something I'll put on her priority list. Jane has just texted in. She said there's been a very a huge improvement in the wait time in our lab in Medicine Hat since Dynalife has taken over. No comparison 
thank you very much. Oh, I think it wasn't. I think it wasn't Dyna Life that Dyna took Lake, over. It was, it the, was Alberta the Alberta Precision Labs. Precision Labs, yes. I know. Like as I said, we uh, we were very hopeful. I mean, I and one more thing that I inherited. I, the the process was well underway. I think we had every reason to think that Dyna Life would be able to do just as well in southern Alberta as they had in northern Alberta. Didn't work out, and there was no point in delaying. We uh, they agreed by mutual agreement that it was time for us to make a change. I'm glad to hear that the experience has improved. Thanks for the feedback. All right, Tom is calling in from Calgary. Hospital smoking policy. Let me push the right button. Go ahead, Tom. You're on with Premier Smith. And yes. if you could turn well, your radio down just a little bit, we're getting some feedback. You have a chance to make a difference. Uh, it's unbelievable that you would allow anybody to smoke anywhere on hospital property to have to walk in as a visitor to walk through people smoking at the entrance is mm -hmm. just unacceptable. And when you think about it, the people that smoke and drink and do drugs and do illegal activity, if you're allowing these people to go ahead in the hospital system when there's good people that have tried to look after their health, you're just making a huge, huge mistake. So I'd like your comment, please. What would you recommend? Well, first, I, you know, there shouldn't be any smoking at all on hospital property, period. If you want to smoke and drink and do drugs and do legal activity, those are the last people you should be giving health care to when there's decent people that require health care. If some guy's waiting for a couple of years to get a knee replacement over somebody that's 300 pounds that's never looked after themselves, it's not a very difficult decision to make, is it? Well, look, we, we, we don't blame patients for when they when they uh, end up getting sick. What we do is we, we try to treat them. And I'll, I, I don't know what the process would be for us to change the smoking policy. So I'd, I'd have to, again, uh, probably talk to somebody over at Alberta Health Services. It does make I, a good point, though, that when you go to a hospital, there are people gathered around whatever the distance away from the entrance doors is where they're allowed to smoke. And for the non-smoker, you have to walk past that or through that vapor of smoke to get into the hospital. It is a good point, but the other part of it is that when you do have people who have limited mobility, yeah. who are addicted to smoking, uh, is it can you really realistically get them wheeled out several hundred meters away mm. from the entrance? I don't know what the answer is, so I'm sure your, your callers and, and listeners are smart. I'm sure that they'll give us some texts and give us some answers to this, but I don't want us to be in a position where we're we're blaming somebody for, um, for, 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 for getting unwell and needing hospital services. I, d I want us to be in a position where we actually have a hospital performing at capacity so that when somebody does get sick, we're able to give them the care. We're, we're obviously, there's the, we, we have to do more work to make sure people understand what they can do to stay well. Good nutrition, sleep, exercise, making sure that they have stress release, not smoking too much, not drinking too much, not doing opioids at all. Those are the kind of things that we can have a public health campaign on, but uh, I just uh, I think we have to accept the situation we find ourselves in right now and give the best care possible text message as a senior are there plans to bring back the $600 affordability payments and electricity rebates there there isn't at this moment because part of what we're doing is we're, we're monitoring what is happening with the uh, with costs and, and we want to make sure that we've got targeted programs to, to help where it's needed the most so we are um, we were glad to see that our inflation rate is the lowest in the country and part of the reason for that is we're offsetting Justin Trudeau's carbon tax Justin Trudeau keeps on increasing the carbon tax and we took the fuel tax off that is, that is at, at great expense to um, Alberta ratepayers um, you know on the one on the one side they're not paying the taxes but on the other side it means that there's a I think over a billion dollars less that, that 
is available to pay for some of the things that we're talking about here. But that's the balance that you have to have. Every time you put in these kinds of programs, it costs a lot of money, and it means that we um, have less money available to, to pay for the, the things that, that uh, people need. We're continuing to grow as, a, as an economy. We continue to need schools and hospitals and roads. We continue to need to support our municipalities. So we're trying to find that right balance of keeping things low for everybody and giving targeted support. I think it was absolutely needed in the first six months of this year. Right now, what I'm hearing is needed is probably an enhancement to our rent subsidy program because rents have gotten out of control in in some in some places, particularly Calgary. I'm hearing as well that we might need to create some more incentives so that municipalities have dollars uh, associated with with uh, approving housing applications so we can get more houses built in all of our major cities as well. So that's probably a good use of our dollars to support some of that infrastructure growth. And we're going to continue to have to do some targeted support for mental health and addiction. We continue to have a problem. We also have to, to do what we can to, to support the, the policing announcements that we've had in Calgary and Edmonton so that we have z- zero tolerance on open-air drug use. So it's always a balance. I, uh, I'll keep monitoring it. We'll try to find ways to address the acute needs for those who are most vulnerable. But um, at the moment, there's no plan to bring it back. Okay, we're going to pause for a break. I'm Wayne Nelson with Premier Danielle Smith. We'll be back to wrap things up in our final segment on Your Province, Your Premier. Wayne Nelson back with you on Your Province, Your Premier, your opportunity to speak with Premier Danielle Smith one-on-one. If you have a specific question you'd like answered, those numbers to phone or text are 403-974-8255 in Calgary, 780-496-0063 in Edmonton. Just wanted to let you know that we have... I have never seen so many text messages in the year or so that I have been doing this show... Um, it is just loaded with text messages. We're not going to be able to get to them what all. What are the topics? What are people oh, weighing in just, on? Everything? We're trying, yes, all across the board. I'm trying to pick topics that we haven't addressed on today's show to get something new. Uh, and we've got a full slate of uh, phone calls as well. So let's get to the phones. Uh, David has been hanging on for half of the show. Uh, go ahead, David. You are on with Premier Danielle Smith. Good morning, Madam Premier. Hi, David. Uh, really good hearing what you had to say this morning. Um, I'm really interested in uh, talking about the Alberta model for addiction treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, I live, or sorry, I work right next to Chinook LRT in Calgary. I see the open air drug use every day. Um, I see what these poor folks have to go through every day, how they're living their lives. I'm scared for them. I'm scared for our kids. And uh, the one thing that makes me hopeful is learning more about the Alberta model. Um, I've looked into it. I've been in recovery for 31 years. Um, I've seen what's happened in BC with their quote unquote safe supply, which is creating more addicts daily. And what I would like to ask is, can we get some kind of regular update on the progress for what's going on with new treatment centers, with uh, detox and with the Alberta model as a whole because I really think that people out there need some of this hope because it is just getting worse and worse. City of Calgary, I don't know what they're doing. They've pushed a lot of these folks out of the uh, LRT um, areas, but just across the street. 
it's not doing anything and it's not making them safer. It's not making us safer. And it certainly is, is just creating more of a problem. Yeah, David, thanks for that. I can tell you the actions we've taken and we're not at the point that you need us to be yet on what outcomes are we achieving because we had to completely revamp the system. When we came into, um, into government, my um, current chief of staff, Marshall Smith, was recruited to lead the efforts in the mental health and addiction file. And he's done a tremendous job, but he keeps telling me we're four years into an eight year plan so we're only halfway through we created a model for these 75 bed recovery communities the first one got rolled out in red deer and started receiving patients in may the second one got rolled out in lethbridge just this month and so it's going to start receiving patients we've broken ground at enoch and then we also have uh the recovery communities that we will have at sutina at uh, Siksika and at Kainai as well, so that we can have uh, approaches that are, are also going to bring in traditional indigenous healing. We've got other ones that we'll have in Calgary and Edmonton. We've created the Bridge Healing Center because we found that there were homeless individuals who were addicted. They would go to the Royal Alex and then uh, the, nobody wanted to discharge them because they needed a place to convalesce. So we created a, a separate facility called Bridge Healing with Dr. Louis Franceschetti so that there is an ability for those individuals to convalesce and then hopefully get connected to a treatment program as well. And then on the policing side, we have zero tolerance for open air drug use in zones in Calgary and Edmonton. We're providing support with not only sheriffs, but also additional support for frontline police officers. We've given the extra budget to uh, public safety and emergency services, as well as justice to hire more prosecutors, hire more court um, personnel. Uh, you'll see that Mickey Amory has just created a special prosecution unit so that we can put the violent offenders right in our, our line of sight to make sure that they continue to stay behind bars and are not out and doing repeat offenses. And we've also... Uh, we're creating a system where everyone has to go before a justice of the peace for their bail hearing. And justices of the peace are appointed by us. And so we're able to create policy direction that we want to have every single person who's committed a violent crime stay behind bars. The last part of that is that we've also opened up treatment centers and corrections facilities as well. So that somebody who goes in to serve their time can get clean of their addiction and hopefully connected to life skills and job skills on the other end. So those are all the things we're doing. A lot of that has happened in the last 11 months. Once all of the system is built out, we're going to have excellent data so that we can show you how many people go through the program, how many get completely recovered and, and get on a pathway to get their lives back, how many need to get multiple treatment. But we're, we're still, again, only only partway into the plan. But I, this is a, a top priority for my government. We have got a raw, we call it our recovery-oriented system of care ministerial committee. They are constantly working together to find new and better ways to make sure that we're giving both this dual approach, the health and uh, the health support to those who need it, but also bringing the hammer down on those who are who are, who are victimizing others. All right. Uh, Jay from the Fort has texted in on the Ched line. I've been a teacher for 20 years. I've never had a health concern as bad in my school as vaping is now. Mm -hmm. I would estimate close to 40% of our students are vaping in high school. We need to make flavored vapes illegal immediately and come up with better programs to control underage use. The idea that mint cigarettes are illegal but bubblegum flavored vapes is fine is outrageous. I did not know it had become such a, a crisis. And so if 40% of kids are in high school vaping, that's uh, something that I've got to get my uh, my health minister looking into as well as our, as Demetrius Nicolaitis, our new education minister. Thanks for making us aware of the problem. I'll, I'll see if they can come up with some suggested solutions. Okay, this one, uh, boy, there's a, there's a lot here on the Alberta Pension Plan, which 
you had to figure was going to create a lot of discussion. Mm -hmm. The question is, um, is there an, uh, is someone who contributes and moves to Calgary, contributes mostly outside of Alberta, or what happens to them if they move out of the province? Will their CPP be penalized? Well, I guess the way I, I look at it is that they, they've managed to figure this out in other types of pension plans. For instance, there's, there are large companies that have defined benefit pension plans. I have a, a friend who's on a TC Energy one, and he did a lot of his work in Ontario, and then he moved to Alberta, and they've managed to figure out how to find him to make sure that he gets the entitlement that he is owed. And this is what actuaries do, is that we have sophisticated sophisticated people who know how to make sure that the funding follows the client, that people have a seamless amount of, uh, of, uh, uh, of pay when they're entitled to receive it, and it is an entitlement. So I have a lot of confidence in the, the, in the people who manage pension systems that that can be worked out. And so it's going to be up to Albertans to decide. If they want to keep the system as it is, then uh, th that's the feedback that we'll get. If they, if they understand that they can get better benefits and lower premiums, and that we don't end up continuing to overpay into this system going forward, then uh, maybe they'll make a different decision. But we've got the panel discussion. I want people to go online, albertapensionplan.ca, participate in the town halls, give the feedback, let us know. And if you want to have a referendum, we'll put it to a referendum. Text message from Calgary. Regarding the issue that happened in the House of Commons, is there a vetting procedure for people who speak or get recognized in the Alberta legislature? We, you know, we, we just returned to doing introductions. They had stopped doing it altogether. And I suppose that's what you could do. You could say no one should ever be allowed to be introduced in the legislature. But, you know, it is the people's assembly. And, uh, and people want to come and they want to enjoy it. And they want to be able to have uh, some recognition from their MLA. So I have a bit of a light touch on that. I've only been into a couple couple sessions now that I've been back again. I can tell you, we have ta I've talked to my speaker and, um, I've, ta and I've, I've told him that if he recognizes anybody, it's again, it's out of my hands when he does that. It, it is the speaker's decision when he decides to recognize people in his gallery. It is individual MLA's decisions when they decide to recognize somebody as well. They let the speaker know, but we do not have a vetting, a vetting process. And it, it does give me pause and leaves me very concerned because I think what happened last week was a, a national embarrassment. I think everybody is humiliated by it. It's going to have lasting consequences on a lot of our relationships with our foreign partners on um, the, uh, uh, it hurt the Jewish community. So nobody wants to see that. I've, I'm just going to be asking MLAs to be very, very careful when they, uh, when they choose to vet somebody in the, in the, in the assembly that um, we just can't have these kinds of things happen. Premier Smith, it's been a pleasure once again. Thanks for joining us today. We're out of time. We'll we see you next time. We are out of time. You bet. Premier Danielle Smith will be back for your province, your premier. I'm Wayne Nelson. You've been listening to your province, your premier. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh, my God. The ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.